of the danger of that. If you hold, if you hold that, that then you, as you get the portions of Scripture that seem to contradict that position, then we start, then we start adapting, adapting some uh, hermeneutical uh, principles that are out of sorts and certainly are not. They're, they're uh, really unusual ways of interpreting Scripture, and we start getting some really off-the-wall interpretations of Scripture. And so uh, we found some of the things that uh, have helped us understand that there uh, certainly is God's desire for families to stay together. We have found that there are exceptions uh, where God allows divorce. And even then, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find that if, even if that happens, that the best thing is for that person to remain single if they're able to do so. Uh, that is the Bible's teaching on that, and uh, there's no getting around that. Paul says um, if you are married, that's a good thing, but if you can remain single, that's an even better thing. And he even uh, emphasizes that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. So we've talked about that. Uh, so the one slope is absolutely restrictive. The second slope that's a slippery slope, if you're not careful, is that there are the, the exceptionalities of Scripture, that there are some exceptions to it. The problem with teaching the exceptions is not that they're not in Scripture, because they are. The problem with teaching on exceptions is a lot of times we take it and we run with it. <laughs> and we make everything that is our situation an exception rather than looking to the Bible to see what the biblical exceptions are. So we're going to take some looks at that. Look at that. Um, is there reason to believe that there are exceptions? Well, certainly there is. Uh, the Bible gives illustration. We just dealt with some of that uh, in Sunday school. Gave you just a, a quick uh, example of where God stated a particular issue. Uh, and if all you did was take that passage of Scripture, um, you would hold to it and say there's never any exception until you go and read other Scriptures and find out, well, no, there are times where there is an exception to that generally stated law or rule. And so we're going to look at some more of those uh, just to kind of give you an idea. There's, there's many, many more than I'll give you here to this afternoon. Uh, of this, but again, to try to illustrate the point. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 5 again on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter number 5. <clears throat> and I'll be very careful with this one uh, because, again, I know we have some younger folks in the room. Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 28. Jesus says, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in, her, in his heart. And uh, so we find that uh, we're not to lust after women. Uh, and if we do, then we've already committed adultery in our hearts. Now, um, there is an interesting uh, thing here in Scripture where the word lust is used in two ways in Scripture. It is used in a wholesome way, meaning a wholesome desire. But it is also used in certainly a carnal uh, mindset. And let me just illustrate that for you. Look, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter number 12. Deuteronomy chapter number 12. And um, let's go to verse number 15. Deuteronomy chapter number 12 and verse number 15. Uh, this is Jesus telling them to go to uh, one of the uh, feasts that they were supposed to observe. And let's back up to verse number uh, 
Uh, let's go back to verse number 13. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not up thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose. And one of thy tribes, there uh, thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. Notwithstanding, thou mayest kill and eat flesh in all thy gates, whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee, the unclean, and the clean may eat thereof, as of the roebuck and as of the heart. So he said, when you go to this feast, I want you to enjoy it. Whatever your heart lusteth after, I want you to do Now, He's saying that in a wholesome way, though. He's obviously not speaking there of carnal lust, is he? But he is speaking of the things that would be wholesome for them, their food, the things that they're going to eat, uh, the, the barbecue they're going to have there, or whatever that is with the sacrifice, and they would roast the sacrifice and then eat that. Uh, and it talks about them partaking of anything that their soul lusteth after. So again, there are times in Scripture where that word lust is Speaking of a good thing, sometimes it is speaking of a carnal thing. How do we know the difference? Context makes a big difference, doesn't it? Now turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews chapter number 13. And again, I'm going to try to treat this delicately and very carefully, but I want us to see this uh, in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, or 13, and um, let's um, go to verse number 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. So, in marriage, that honorable desire is okay. The bed is undefiled under the bonds of marriage. So, it's not speaking here in Hebrews of a carnal lust, but of a wholesome desire. A husband desiring his wife. Uh, Everybody understand the difference here. Okay? So, again... If all I did was read Matthew chapter number 5, and it tells me here, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery, and I just take that passage and I look at nothing else in Scripture, I would never look at any woman. I would never get married. I would stay single the whole of my life because I would think it would be wrong to have any desire for a woman in that case. You understand what I'm saying? There's the wholesomeness of it in marriage uh, that the Bible speaks of. So again... Uh, there are things that Jesus makes the, the, the base statement on, and then later on he expounds on and, and clarifies some other things on it. So uh, some things to consider on that. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 12. <clears throat> Matthew chapter number 12 and verse number 5. Verse number 5 he says, Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and yet are blameless. Now, what was the command that was given in Exodus chapter 20? Remember the Sabbath day to what? Keep it holy. They went on in, in Leviticus and other places. They expounded on that and said, okay, here's the parameters of what you're allowed to do on the Sabbath. But what Jesus said is the, the folks that are serving in the temple, the priests, the Levites that are serving in that day, they labor. They're doing the work that God has given them to do. And they labor, and yet they don't profane the Sabbath. So the general rule is, the general law given in the Old Testament is, you're not to work on the Sabbath. But there's an exception to that in the the fact that the priests are allowed to work on the Sabbath. So again, a very narrow but exceptional thing, something that is accepted to that particular law. Look with me in Luke chapter number 18. Luke chapter number 18 
and verse number 20. Luke chapter 18 and verse number 20. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. Okay? Would we all agree that, that the Bible teaches us to honor our fathers and mothers? Ephesians chapter 6, so that we're children, obey our parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor our father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. It is a commandment of God. It's what God has given to us. Now look with me in Luke chapter number 14. Luke chapter number 14 and verse number 26. And if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister, sister, yea, in his own life also he cannot be made, cannot be my disciples. And again, he's not speaking here so much of hating your family as much as he is speaking of the love that we have for God being such that it causes our love for our families to look like hate. And understanding that in this time, oftentimes, in order to love Christ and to remain true to Him, they would lose their fathers and their mothers and their sisters and their brothers. They would disown them. Mothers and fathers that would tell their children, you are not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mothers and fathers that would give them a direct command that they are not to trust Christ as their Savior. Should they then honor their father and mother to be able to keep the law that God gave them? No, there's an exception to that, isn't there? That there were, there were young people that trusted Christ who lost mother and father because of that. For the sake of Christ, they lost them. And so even though the general rule is to honor your father and mother, we learn that everything is to be taken within the context of what it's given as, within the heart of God. Look with me in Titus chapter number 3. Titus chapter number 3. And we're going to see several verses on this particular one, so keep your Bibles handy. And again, all I'm doing is giving biblical precedent for God to establish something and then to be able to give exception to it later on in Scripture or to expound further on in Scripture, giving exceptionality to it. Look with me in uh, Titus chapter number 3 and look in verse number 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, <clears throat> to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. So again, we're supposed to be obedient to civil government. Uh, the Bible teaches us this in Titus chapter number 3. If we take that verse, you can't refute it. We're supposed to uh, put them in mind to be subject to them. All right, so again, looking at... Um, uh, let's go to First Peter chapter two, a very very famous one. A lot of people quote this one. First Peter chapter number two, and uh, verse number thirteen. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or as governors, or as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God with that with. Well-doing, ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So again, he gives uh, instruction here that we're to be submitted to uh, civil government. And we're to submit ourselves to them. Mark chapter number 12. Mark chapter number 12. 
and uh, set verse number 17. Mark chapter 12, verse number 17. And Jesus answering said, uh, said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So again, we have multiple times to see that God's heart is that as much as we are able to do it, we are to follow after the government that he's put over us, the authority that he's put over us. Would we be in agreement with that so far? I, I don't think there's any question of that in Scripture, that as much as we're able to, we're to follow that. All right? But when we come to uh, Acts chapter number 4, Acts chapter number 4, and look with me in verse number 19. Acts chapter number 4, verse number 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, more than unto God, judge ye. Again, he tells us in Acts chapter number 5 and verse number 29, the one that we read to start this whole study off with, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So is there a contradiction in our scripture? Not at all. God gives us his heart, what his desire is, but then he says there are some times that you can't, you can't hold to that. It's more important that you follow after God in this matter. And uh, so again, there are multiple, and we could go on and on. I could give you probably 20 or 30 more examples in Scripture of times where God establishes, this is my heart on the issue, but these are exceptions to it. So for us to look at the issue of divorce and remarriage, it is not taken out of context, nor is it anything unusual in Scripture for us to say, okay, this is God's heart on the issue. But now here are some exceptions. It is in keeping with His character. It is certainly in keeping with other examples in Scripture of other occasions where God did something very similar to that. Um, again, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we're not going to take time to... Uh, look, what we, we're going to take time. We need to see this. I want you to see this. Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 24 again. And, and just again, to show you how God's mercy oftentimes is displayed even on top of the law that has been given. Deuteronomy chapter 24, again, we're dealing with the whole divorce remarriage. And so this woman has been given the bill of divorcement in verse 1. She's been allowed to go out in verse 2 and remarry. Verse number 3, the Bible says, And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which, he, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. So that's the law of the matter. That's God's heart on it. Would you understand that? We see that so far? Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 3 for a moment. Jeremiah chapter number 3. Verse number 1, they say, and this is what, Jesus, what uh, Jeremiah uh, is referring to, they say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? That's what Deuteronomy 24 said, wasn't it? Isn't that what Deuteronomy 24 said? If she goes to a second husband, she's not to go back to her first husband. Right? Let's look what it says here, verse number 1. But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet, notice this, return again to me, saith the Lord. The one is God's commandment and justice, the second is God's mercy and forgiveness. 
He tells Israel, even though this is what the law states, I still want you to come again to me. So again, exception is made. Now, why is that important? Because God's greatest desires are the things that He makes the laws about. He allows exceptions for our sake. And He allows us to do them without further sinning. The rule should always be the priority for you and I. But we also need to understand that there are exceptions that can be used as a last resort, yet without sin. And that's the whole, the whole crux of this matter. We're not here trying to promote divorce. We're not trying to promote remarriage. We understand God's heart on the issue. I don't think that's anything in question here. But what we are saying is for far too long we have taught that it is wrong and sinful in every case to be divorced and to be remarried. And that just simply is not the case. There are exceptions in Scripture that are given. So we took some time to look at those two weeks ago. Let's take a quick look at them again. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time uh, because it's, it's the most exhaustive chapter of Scripture that is given on the topic. And we are going to answer... Once we get through all of this, and Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we're going to answer some of, some of the more difficult questions that are asked about this subject, and we're going to try to give you the Scripture for it to show it again to try to help us understand it scripturally and biblically. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we find that uh, in verse number, um, verse number uh Give me just a minute. Verse number 10 and 11, excuse me. Verse number 10 and 11, Paul says, okay, this is what the Lord taught. Again, he's referring to Matthew 19. He's also referring to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, where he also taught the same thing that he taught in Matthew 19. And he's referring to Mark chapter 10. So all of those being what the Lord taught, referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So everybody understand what we're dealing with here. So in verse number 10 and 11, Paul said, Now this is what the Lord stated, and this was the commandment that was given. Uh, and unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. So that's, that's the rule, that's the general rule that God gave. It is God's desire that that be the case. But, and if she depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. That is God's desire. However, in Deuteronomy 24, we find that it is allowable. It's not his desire, but it is allowable for that wife to remarry. You say, how do you know that? Well, because we have obvious Exceptions given. One of them found in Matthew chapter number 19, referring back to Deuteronomy 24, and that was for the cause of fornication. He also says in verse number 8, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows. So we have two classifications given here. Those that are unmarried and those that are widows. Now the unmarried uh, includes those that have been divorced, and those that have never been married. 
Both of them are referred to with the term unmarried. Um, if you look down to, let's see here, verse number 11, but and if she depart, this is the one that's been divorced, let her remain unmarried. So again, he refers to the one that has departed, the one that has been given the bill of divorcement, as an unmarried. He also refers to uh, the one that has never been married, further down in the chapter, down around verse number 20, uh, 20 or so, somewhere in the 22, 23, he refers to those that have never been married as also being unmarried. And then, of course, a widow would be considered unmarried. So he says this in verse number 8, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Now, Paul was, Paul was not married at this time. And uh, he, he's saying this is the best thing. If you're unmarried, it doesn't matter if you're, you've never been married. It doesn't matter if you've been a widow. It doesn't matter if you've been divorced. The best thing is if you can remain unmarried, that's the best thing. And he talks about why later on in the chapter. He says you're able to give yourself wholly to the Lord. You don't have the cares of caring for a family and children and husband and spouse. You can give yourself more wholly to serving God. And those that are able to do that and have been given grace to do that and they are not burning in their lust to do those things, then Paul says that's the best way to go. But if you cannot contain, notice he says this, verse number 9. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So he gives the commandment, verse 10 and 11, that, that God has given. and verse number 12, he says, to the rest speak I. In other words, God didn't speak of this, the Lord didn't speak of this in his earthly ministry. He did not address it beyond what he said in Matthew 19, Matthew 5, and Mark 10. The Lord didn't speak on the subject any more than that. So the rest of this matter is being now expanded on, and this is Paul speaking it, not the Lord, unless we say, well, this, this is Paul's opinion. Notice what he says here. The rest speak I, not the Lord. And he says in verse number 6, but I speak this by what? By what? Permission. Okay, so Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Speaking these things by permission. He has God's permission to speak these things. So he speaks to the rest. If any brother have a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Again, no, no argument at all. God, uh, Paul is saying, listen, it's best reconcile the family. Recon even if it's an unbelieving, an unequal yoke, if they're pleased to dwell, certainly keep the family together, if at all possible. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. Paul agrees with it. I agree with it. I think we would all agree with that here. That's the best thing. If the unbelieving... Now, notice what it says here. Uh, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean. But now are they holy? Now that's not speaking here of them being saved. Uh, it's speaking them uh, them of the purifying effect of a Christian mother and or spouse in a marriage situation. A Christian shed salt and light on that relationship, both spousal and parent to child relationship. So the family is made better by having a Christian in it. Okay, that's what that's talking about there. Not that he's they're going to save the spouse or they're going to save the children by remaining in the family. 
Paul speaks to that a little bit later. He says, you don't know if you're going to be able to do that or not. So don't let that be the reason. Um, so he goes on to say, but the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean. But now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. This kind of refutes the idea that God has never made an exception for divorce. He has made an exception for divorce. If the unbelieving depart, he says, let them depart. And notice what else he goes on to say. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. The unbelieving departs. The marriage is broken. They are no longer husband and wife. By the way, in the sight of God or in the sight of man. And they are not under bondage. Well, what does that phrase, not under bondage, mean? Well, it's the same terminology, the same verbiage that's used later on in the chapter. Let's take a look at that. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. So when the marriage is together... It's referred to as the wife and the husband being bound by the law. As long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty. She's no longer under that bondage. Do we see that? So the speaking in verse number 14... Uh, I'm sorry, verse number 15 that a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases is the same verbiage that's used to say that a wife whose spouse has died is also not under bondage. She's at liberty, meaning she can remarry. Okay, without being in adultery, she's allowed to remarry. In fact, Paul tells the younger widows later on he tells younger widows that they ought to remarry. Um, that the older widows, the church is supposed to take care of. But the younger women, still able to bear children, still able to work in the home, ought to remarry. So again, there are, there are things that are given there with regards to bondage of the marriage. The same terminology is used with regards to the separation of uh, the unbeliever and the believer as there is with the death of a spouse. They are not under bondage. That, that, that marital bond is broken. It's no longer there. So they are eligible to remarry at that point. Um, let's move on down. Verse number 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? So just because... Uh, you know, and the Bible talks about if the unbelieving is pleased to dwell with her, let them not depart. Uh, but you are not to stay in that marriage um, if they are not pleased. You do not have to. Um, I say you're not to stay in. 
you don't have to. You can always stay in a marriage by choice, but you're not required to divorce. It's giving you the option to do so. Uh, but do not, and the reason for staying with them is that, well, I can, I can win them to Christ. Paul said you don't know that. If you're, in a, if you're in an abusive situation, if you're in a, a home that is miserable, they are, not, they are not happy to dwell with you as an unbeliever, uh, Paul says don't, don't rely on that. You don't know that that's, that's going to be the case. He makes a statement here, God has called us to peace. If that marriage is nothing but a battle zone all the time, don't stay with them just for the sake of, I think I can win them to Christ. It's not a good enough reason. Okay? God has called us to peace. He expects you to be able to live a life of peace. For what knowest thou, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, if thou shalt save thy wife? So again, we dealt with almost all of that last Sunday, two Sundays ago. I'm not going to reteach the whole, everything in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Uh, but we've looked at some reasons why we can believe that there would be exceptions. So the two that we have seen, there's actually three we've seen here, to be remarried. One is if a spouse dies, that's a reason or an exception where someone can marry a second time. Okay? We certainly know that. That, that usually is not one that's up for debate. Most people agree on that one. If your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. I don't think too many people think that you're in adultery if you marry after your spouse dies. And we find that from the end of chapter number 7. Um, we also find it in Romans chapter number 7, which we'll look at, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. So we know that one's an exception. Uh, Christ gives us, in Matthew 19 and in Deuteronomy 24, that for the cause of fornication, there is the allowance to remarry. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, some people only look at Matthew 19 and say, well, it doesn't say anything about remarrying there in Matthew 19. It just says they're allowed to divorce. But if you go to Deuteronomy 24, which is what Matthew 19 is referring to, it does say she can go and remarry. So again, we've got the second exception. The third exception we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. So we come back to the original question that the Pharisees asked Jesus which was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? The answer is no. But there are specific reasons that it is lawful and is legal for them to do so, to break the bonds of marriage and to be remarried. So the third one we find is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Okay, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now, there is a particular phrase in here that I think warrants us looking at. Um, and I believe a case can be made for this from Scripture. And if you'll, you'll bear with me, we'll look at some Scripture on this. But uh, let's take a look in verse number 15 again. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. Notice this. In such cases... Well, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? What does in such cases mean? Does it mean just when an unbelieving spouse? Let me ask you this question. 
Is there ever a time where a believing spouse is to be treated like an unbelieving spouse in Scripture? Is there anything ever given in Scripture where a believing spouse or a believing a believer is to be treated as an unbeliever? Have we ever seen anything like that in Scripture? Yes, no? Okay, let's take a look. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter number 5. We're going to look at several passages here. Galatians chapter number 5 and verse number 21. Let's back up to uh, verse number 18. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings. And it sounds like an exhaustive list, doesn't it? But he's not done yet. He uses the phrase, and such like, meaning this list is not exhaustive. But things that are like this are to be applied to this principle that he's teaching here in Galatians chapter 5. But he gives us a great list of things that are examples of the such like. Do we understand that? It's not an exhaustive list, but enough example given that we can say things that are similar to this. Okay, let's look again at, um, let's go to Mark chapter number 7. Mark chapter number 7. And verse number 8. Mark chapter number 7. For the laying, uh, verse number 8, For the laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. So again, he gives a couple of examples, the washing of cups and pots and many other such like things. Oftentimes in Scripture, they give you some examples, and then they say, and such like. So when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, and it says, in such cases, plural, not necessarily just that one case, but cases similar to that, like that, that meet those types of criteria. All right? So that being the case, and, and again, showing precedence in Scripture where, where things are worded that way, let's take a look and see, is there a time where a believer is to be treated as a non-believer? Look with me in Matthew chapter number 18. And again, don't take my word for it. We're just taking a look at what does the Bible say about this stuff, okay? Um, so we just want to see what, what it has to say. Matthew chapter number 18, we're dealing here with church discipline. And we get to verse number 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. So he starts off with calling this person that's going to do the trespassing as a brother. So we would have to say that he's referring here to believers. Would we be in agreement on that? A brother is a believer. If, a brother, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two or more in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he neglect 
to hear them tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a what? An heathen man and a publican. We have a principle that's given here of Scripture. There are times that a believer, a brother in Christ, after having been tried to reconcile the situation and everything has been exhausted to reconcile and they still will not return. This is the situation that God found himself in in Jeremiah chapter 3. He had tried to reconcile with Israel over and over and over and over again, and they would not. Finally, God says, I'm giving you a bill of divorcement. This is the intent, I believe, that 1 Corinthians 7 talks about when it deals with the subject of if they're willing and pleased to stay with you, by all means keep it together. But if after trying and trying and trying to reconcile, they continue to refuse, it's the same thing we find here in the church, discipline. You go to that person that has wronged you. Let's use the marriage covenant for a moment, the marriage vows. Let's say this is an issue of a spouse that has done the other wrong. The spouse comes one-on-one and tries to reconcile. They try, they try, they try. We're gonna, I want to see changes. You make promises to each other. Okay, we're going to make this thing work. And you do. You work at it. But the, the spouse flounders again and fails. Then oftentimes they come and they meet with the preacher or they meet with a counselor, Christian counselor, and they get marital counseling, a second step in the process of reconciliation. And that doesn't seem to work. Again, the divorce, the remarriage issue is a last resort. We're not saying this is something you do right off the bat. You do everything you can to reconcile. But at the end of the day, if it cannot be done. The person is intent on doing what they're going to do. The same thing, I believe, that is taught by principle in Matthew 18 also applies in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when it says, in such cases, plural. That even if it's a believer that has gone by the wayside and will not refuse, has abandoned God, has abandoned the Christian life, has abandoned all of this and cannot be restored, that they are to be treated as the heathen or as the unbeliever. I believe biblical principle dictates that and can then apply the principle found in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Again, a brother or sister not bound under that situation. So there are multiple uh, exceptions. They are very few, but there are several of them. Now, again, for any reason, no, not to, not to happen. Is it to be done lightly and quickly? Absolutely not. Every effort should be made to restore the family. But and if it cannot be, if everything has been exhausted, all scriptural means has been used to try to keep that family together and salvage that family, then divorce is allowed, and they are not under bondage in such cases. So here's the pattern that I believe when a problem comes up with a spouse. Number one, I think you deal with yourself first. The Bible talks about if we're going to go and try to 
take care of a fault in a brother, that we need to get rid of the fault in our own eye first. Step number one, if you're having the problem with the spouse, you try to deal with what your problems are first. Once that's done, you try to reconcile with the spouse. If the spouse refuses, you take them to one or two others and try to get reconciliation. If that doesn't happen, you bring them to the church. If that doesn't happen, or you bring it to a larger group that you can uh, trust to do this, if that doesn't happen, then you must treat them as an unbeliever in such a case. And then that's where you have the opportunity. You don't have to. It's not required to divorce or to remarry. But it is allowable. Okay? And all we're getting at through this teaching is, for so long, a lot of times we've taught in our churches that there's never an allowable time for divorce or remarriage. And that is simply not the case. There are allowable times. All right? Are you all tired? We have talked for a long time. So we're going to end it there. We'll pick up there next Sunday. I will say this. Um, there are some books in the back on the back row written by uh, a preacher. Um, very, very in-depth uh, scriptures. And you can, if you would like one of those books, I would ask that you take one per family, and if you can, share it. Uh, but you can have a copy of those books. Uh, to reinforce what we're teaching here, to show the biblical verses. If you've missed some verses or you're thinking, boy, I, I, I didn't write that one down. Um, excellent book. Some of you may have already read it or part of it, but you're welcome to those. They're on the back row back there. And if you'd like to take one of those. Again, anything we're teaching here, and I know we're not through with building the case yet. We've still got a few more stones to put on the foundation here. Uh, but anything that you have, question or you feel like, no, I've missed it in Scripture, uh, get a hold of me. Call me. Let's go get a cup of coffee, whatever we got to do. I'll come to your house. Whatever we need to do, let's sit down, because I don't want to be wrong on the issue. Uh, I want to be right on it. And uh, so help me with that if you're, if you're willing to do that. If it's, if it's not a pressing issue that needs to be dealt with before next Sunday, we may answer your question next Sunday and what we're going to teach next week. Um, so you may want to wait till then, but certainly if it's bothering you now, don't wait. Just come call me and talk to me, whatever you need to do. And, folks, I promise you I will give a listening ear to it. Okay, I've spent a great deal of time, I would say probably close to two or 300 hours, studying this thoroughly in Scripture. I did not hold this position before I studied it. I came to Scripture and I said, what does it say? And... There's a lot of things I can say, well, it means this, but it doesn't say it. And I don't want to be guilty of that. I want to come to it and say, what does it say? What does it tell me? And so, again, if, if I'm missing something here, I've misread something or I've twisted it, please come see me and say, Pastor, I think you missed it. Let's take a look at this and here's why. And show me the scripture and we will look at it together. And if I need to get up here next Sunday and say, folks, I messed up. Let's go back. Let's look at this again. We want to be right on Scripture. This is a serious enough matter that has kept thousands and thousands of people out of Christ-honoring homes and out of ministry that should never have been out of those things. And it's that important of an issue. So um, bear with us. We're going to finish up. Lord willing, we'll finish up next Sunday. Uh, until then, you're welcome to take those books if they'll be a help to you. 
Uh, it's just one one volume. Uh, there is another volume to it. Uh, it's a two-part book. If you want the first volume, let me know. We'll get it for you. But the first volume talks about marrying rightly to begin with and finding a good Christian spouse, how to date, that kind of thing. The second part of it deals with uh, the things that we're talking about here. So if you want the first part, maybe you've got some young people coming up and you want some good biblical advice on how to how to teach them how to find a spouse rightly, scripturally, you might want to get the first volume of that book. And if you do, let me know. We'll make sure we get some copies of it as well and it might be a help to you as also. All right, so let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. And um, I hope this will be a help to us, folks. I really do. Uh, as a church, we want to be right on this. And um, like I said, if there's any questions, please, please, by all means, come see me. And we'll talk about those and discuss them. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless and use it. Lord, may you give us wisdom and discernment as we study its pages. I, I certainly don't want to read into Scripture anything that's not there. But, Father, we certainly want to understand your heart and what you have said on the issue. And so, Father, may we rightly divide your word and understand it thoroughly as a whole as we take it all into view. And give us your guidance from your Holy Spirit. Dismiss us with your blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.